stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Let's talk pipelines. Some good news on the pipeline front. The Line 3 Replacement and Expansion Project is now operational. Be uh, fully in service by the end of this month. Uh, progress continues to be made on the Trans Mountain expansion project. But what about after those two? What's the next export pipeline project, or will there be a next? Are these the last two export pipelines to be built? Either because there's not a need, or maybe because the regulatory bar is now set too high, that it's too hard to get pipelines approved. Well, joining us to talk uh, more about some of these issues, in fact, wrote about some of these matters in the uh, recent edition of Alberta Law Review. Andrew Leach joins us, uh, energy and environmental economist at the University of Alberta, associate professor at the Alberta School of Business at the U of A. Professor Leach, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. It's nice to be back. Let's talk about line three, first of all, because this is a replacement project, but certainly expands that export capacity. It's operational. It feels like, you know, that's a big moment or, or a big accomplishment, achievement. Uh, but what's your sense of the, the significance of this, first of all? Well, I think, as you, as you said, it's a significant project, massive expenditure for Enbridge. I think their largest capital project, at least in the pipeline space, it's... Um, it's going to provide relief for some of the shippers out of Western Canada to be able to, you know, avoid some of those different higher differentials that we've seen, and you know that along with Trans Mountain that's that's still under construction, and some of the smaller expansions that have been in play, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, means where we should be out of the that world of intense pipeline constraints. Right, and that, that's been an issue. I mean, obviously, Alberta's been dealing with a lot of issues, but pipeline capacity has been one. So this adds to a Trans Mountain, assuming that gets over the finish line, will as well. If we assume that, that we've got both both pipeline projects relatively soon, where, where does that leave Alberta in terms of those needs? Uh, you know, right now, it's, uh, unless there's going to be a big turnaround in the announcement of new oil sands projects or oil sands expansions, we should not be in a in a pipeline or back in a situation where pipelines are limiting the egress of Alberta at least overall. It still might end up that there are certain companies that don't have access to a particular pipeline to a particular destination. But in terms of the broad constraint on our on our shipping, right now we're we're headed back to a world where we have sufficient pipeline capacity for the foreseeable future. Well it's interesting because you sort of see arguments, similar arguments from both sides, those who are opposed to pipelines, those that are champions of pipelines, that uh, these pipeline mm -hmm. projects uh, lead to increased activity, lead to increased investment, but is that necessarily the case? Uh, well I think to a point. Uh, so if you think about what does a pipeline do, it lets you get your product to market at a lower cost of transportation than would otherwise be the case. So it gives an advantage to Alberta oil sands barrels of, you know, somewhere between 5 and probably 15. I've seen some estimates that are higher than that, but that's probably about as high as you get dollars per barrel relative to rail or whatever the alternative would be. So if that's the point where, you know, that difference would make your next project viable, then, you know, then a pipeline is going to affect development. But when you're talking about getting back to the world we were in, you know, five or ten years ago, five years ago, um, of, you know, people thinking of triple-digit, I guess more than five now, seven years yeah. ago, people thinking of triple-digit oil prices and 
you know, building project after project after project, we're not kind of a pipeline to rail differential away from that world. We're a significant change in the world oil market away from that world. And that looks less and less likely every day. Well, I mean, we're at the moment where we're seeing uh, oil prices surging. And obviously, oil prices are certainly linked to investment and activity. But um, how how different is this uh, price boom from maybe previous uh, price booms we've seen before? Yeah, well, I think right now what you're seeing in energy markets as well as basically every other market is the mar- is the world rebounding slash recovering from the upset of COVID. So uh, we saw a lot of uh, constraint in production. We saw a lot of holdback from OPEC and the so-called OPEC plus of restricting production, restricting output. We certainly saw in Canada for a time a restriction of output. Our output has come back, but global output is not fully back to where it was even uh, pre-pandemic. But in those intervening months, you're going to have uh, certainly some supply crunch. And that's most of what we're seeing right now. You're also seeing, of course, as, as you say, this impact of a lack of investment, particularly in the U.S. market with that price crash that we saw, not just due to COVID, but really the long run from 2015 forward, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of people lose a lot of invested dollars, and so we're going to see some hesitancy from those types of investors to pile back in in the same way. So even though we know there's a lot of cheap oil out there, uh, it's still right now the situation where there aren't quite as many people willing to you know make a long term bet on fifty, sixty, seventy dollar oil as there were seven ish years ago, right. and so. You know, as uh, but as Daniel Jurgen says, that you know eventually the surest cure for high prices is high prices, and we know that those relatively cheap resources haven't gone away. Whereas if you go back to you know the initial oil sands boom, it was the world is the world doesn't have access to cheap oil. It wasn't just that it's there and no one's investing in it. It was that we didn't really think there was this massive opportunity for you know, $50, $60, $70 oil, we thought that the next opportunities were things that were way more expensive than our oil sands and way uh, more challenging to get to. And with a lot of the similar sort of big capital, long lead time type of characteristics. And so we saw people pile into the oil sands because it was the new, new thing and the, what the world energy economy was going to need. And, and now it's not as clear that you're going to see people pile back into uh, these long-run bets on relatively expensive oil. And what that might mean then for the future of exports pipelines, because we've been so focused on some of these specific projects, the two that, that still seem to be moving forward, obviously Keystone XL, that, that looks like it's not going to happen. Uh, but is this kind of the, the end of that debate? Or are these maybe likely the, the last two export pipelines we're going to see in this country? I think it could well be. I mean, I think you might see some projects that look like Line 3. Uh, there, there are still a lot of older pipelines in service. There's a lot of potential for a project like that to, um, you know, refurbish or expand an existing pipeline. But the idea that we're going to have, you know, a million barrels a day of growth potential with companies willing to sign long-term 30-year shipping contracts 
go through all of the regulatory uh, challenges and process to try to permit a new greenfield pipeline. It's just not something that, that I see certainly in the next, in the foreseeable future, unless there's a really big change in that uh, global oil market. Well, and, and you wrote about some of these issues uh, for the Alberta Law Review, and I guess it's a big question. Are we, are we likely to not see new export pipelines because there's not a need for them, or is it because now the regulatory bar is, is too high to clear? Yeah, and, and and this was the the crux of my paper was riffing a little bit on on Jason Kenney's terming the the C sixty nine the No New Pipelines Act yes. or the No More Pipelines Act, and I think really what we're most likely in is a world where at least for uh, the medium to long term we're not going to see the market available to support a new export pipeline, and we saw that a little bit right with KXL and Energy East where. Um, TransCanada is like, okay, Trump's elected, um, we've got this, we've got KXL back, and they put out what's called an open season or a call for uh, long-term commitments to shipping agreements, and those were widely reported to have been undersubscribed. So there was no, and and that's back in 2016, 17, um, and the world has changed a lot since then. So it's not a case where we have that pent-up demand saying we really want a new pipeline and we're prepared to make a long-term financial commitment to it. So the regulatory regime has changed and it has arguably made it more difficult to get a pipeline approved, but may have made those approvals more um, tenable in front of the courts in the long term. But whether or not someone's going to come forward, I think the oil prices have sort of dictated that it's unlikely you're going to see somebody come forward with a new uh, a new call for a greenfield pipeline. Well, it's interesting because with Energy East and obviously C69, that that whole uh, you know set of regulations didn't apply to the process for Energy East. But there's there's still that notion that persists that you know the the expectation uh, of you know downstream emissions and and all of these uh, additional hurdles that Energy East might have had to deal with is what killed that pipeline. So there's still that that persistent belief out here. I think Andrew that. You know, these kinds of regulations are, are pipeline killers, back to, you know, the, the, the premier's terminology. I mean, the emissions thing drives me crazy because for two reasons. Number one, the, the notion that TransCanada had this wholly viable project that they felt really great about. And then the government said, you have to do this report on induced emissions, which was a report they'd already done for Keystone XL. So this wasn't something that was novel for them. Um, they'd sort of say, oh, well, you know, now that we have to do that, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. And, or the notion that, well, by making them do that, it was signaling you can't get approval. Um, you know, Trans Mountain had to go through that, and it's been approved twice by the Trudeau government. So this idea that that particular piece was somehow material to TransCanada's decision, as opposed to the broader sense of, yeah, it's going to be a real challenge to get this through Quebec, no doubt. And really, we don't have the market for both of these mainline pipelines, KXL and Energy East. And all told, the shippers would probably prefer a cheaper route to a higher value market that Keystone XL provided. That set of circumstances led them to abandon Energy East. And it's convenient to hang that on an emissions estimate. But, you know, unless you thought that emissions estimate was going to be atrocious and was going to reveal something that has never been revealed about another pipeline, about how much emissions would be caused by this particular um, piece of infrastructure, I can't see that as being a reason for a company to say, 
it's worth us losing a billion dollars. It's interesting, too, because as we talk about export pipelines, and it was originally more the focus of Energy East. I mean, it was a long way to to coastline, but it was sort of built that way. The conversation has shifted, it feels like now. And, you know, you, you've drawn some parallels to a lot of the talk we saw in the early 80s about the need for a national energy policy and supplying Canadians with Canadian energy. And it's it's kind of funny how we've seen that almost adopted on on the right, that there's now this political impetus that Canadian oil will be used by Canadians. Do you, do you see the conversation shifting more in, in that direction? Or does it run into the same issues as, as export pipelines do? Um, well, I, th- I think what you're seeing is pipeline proponents willing to embrace whatever conversation of the moment they think justifies a particular pipeline. So I don't think Jason Kenney or other pipeline proponents, Brett Wilson, for example, have any interest at all in any sort of policies that require use of Canadian barrels by Canadians. I, I firmly believe that they don't, right? And if, if the government came forward and said, we're going to put in place the fiscal framework, an import ta- an import tariff and an export tax that would make that more likely to happen, they, you know, Jason Kenney would be marching on Ottawa. Right. And, and so I don't think there's any sense in which they actually believe in that. I think it's, you know, for the purposes of this particular conversation, we are going to talk about how it's upsetting to us that Quebec still imports barrels and that New Brunswick still imports barrels. And boy, doesn't that seem like a foolish thing. But, you know, when, when you compare it back to, as you said, the speeches that were given introducing the National Energy Program um, and Alan McKechn saying, you know, the one chink in our armor as an energy exporter is that we still rely on imported crude. Um, I don't think there. I find it ironic, but I don't think there's any sense that any of any of them actually believe it. And, and unfortunately, that's a pattern. I don't think I think there's a lot of this. We're going to latch on to a particular label, whether it's ESG or what have you, for the purposes of this conversation. But we're not going to live and breathe it everywhere else or in any other conversation. And if you bring it up in another context, oh, yeah, well, that no, we didn't really mean that. We were just saying that for that for that purpose. But what about the market case? Is, is there any more of a market case for pipelines to other part of the country than there would be to other parts of the continent? No, I I think exactly the opposite, right? A a pipeline is like any other transportation infrastructure. It's going to cost you more per kilometer, and you're going to want that transportation cost to direct you to the highest value market that's available. So right now, uh, the highest value market that's available for crude oil in general is still going to be west. And the next highest value market is going to be south. And if you're particularly if you're talking about shipping heavy crude, shipping to the northeastern corner of North America is going to be one of your, you know, it's great that you can put it on a boat there and ship it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, the added shipping costs of taking it all the way from Alberta to St. John versus from, for example, Alberta to uh, one of the ports on the West Coast, those added transportation costs are essentially lost. The world market's not going to compensate you for those. So all else equal, you just rather have the shortest route with the lowest transportation cost. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, and we mentioned your piece. It's up at albertalawreview.com. Andrew Leach, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks so much.
All right, there you go. That's uh, Andrew Leach, uh, energy economist, associate professor at the Alberta School of Business, University of Alberta. We'll take another break here, back to wrap things up on Wednesday afternoon, right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.